Reporter Kelsey Ray here from the Colorado Independent. Welcome to another episode of the Indie Weekly Podcast. Today I'm sitting down with reporter Tina Griego, a longtime Denver City columnist at the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post, and now our managing editor. Thanks for chatting today, Tina. Glad to be here. Tina moved back to Colorado last year after four years in Richmond, Virginia. Her work now focuses largely on issues like affordable housing, gentrification, and Denver's changing landscape. Her work often asks... With Colorado's recent growth and booming population, who wins and who gets left behind? I've brought Tina on the podcast today to talk about her latest story, The Denver Boot, which focuses on a particularly destructive side of the city's affordable housing crisis, eviction. Okay, tell me what inspired you to write this story. Okay, so I think more accurately it's called an opus um, because it actually turned out to be quite long. There's a lot of ground to cover, but... Back in February, I interviewed Matthew Desmond. Matthew Desmond is a Harvard sociologist who wrote a book called Evicted. It won the Pulitzer Prize this year for nonfiction, a fantastic, or maybe fantastic's not the right word. It's a pretty in-depth look at eviction in Milwaukee. Um, he created his own database. He lived in um, the poor white part of town and then the poor African-American part of town, and he wrote a a book that goes in-depth about the impact of eviction on people's lives in Milwaukee. He was here in Denver in February, and I interviewed him for a um, day-long conference, and it made me realize that I had not looked, as much writing as I do about this issue in Denver, I had not looked at eviction. I had written back in September that 22,000 people applied for 300 subsidized housing vouchers, and it never really occurred to me to ask, well, what are the other 21,700 people doing? Where are they going? How are they living? Um, and that started me on this story. What you have is a landscape in which rents have been soaring for a while now. Not enough affordable rentals have been built, and we can talk about that later, but you ha so you have a lot of working class and lower income people who are competing for a dwindling supply of affordable housing. And what's happening is that the more low income you are, the more likely you are to rent. And not only are you more likely to rent, you're also more likely to pay more of your income toward rent. So you're paying well past the kind of standard ideal of 30% of your before tax income should go to rent. You're paying 50%, 60%, 70% of your income to rent, and it's not sustainable. And I think you even experienced this change in housing prices upon moving back to Colorado. That's absolutely right. When I moved back, I was gone only four years. And when I moved back, I was astounded by how much it changed. And I'm, it'll be a year in August that I return. And it's true. I, I, you know, we lived in a little bungalow in northwest Denver in Highlands neighborhood. There was no way we could buy that house now. Eric Sullivan from the city explains it this way, that if you're a first-time home buyer and you want to kind of come into enter the Denver market, you need at least $350,000. So let's say a down payment of around $70,000. A lot of people can't do that. Millennials are having a hard time doing that. Our elderly, obviously on fixed income, have a hard time doing that. So developers responded by building more rentals. 5,600 rentals were built last year. But of those rentals... And this really shocked me. Of those rentals, 8 of 10 were built toward the luxury end of the market. 
So the Denver Housing Authority did a study in, to kind of figure out, well, what is the gap between demand for affordable housing and supply? And that gap is at least 21,000 rentals. In your story, you mentioned that it's easier to keep a low-income rental than it is to build one. Can you kind of talk about that? So this is the direction that the city is moving in, right? This is part of their strategy because the city has come to an admittedly belated realization that um, other cities' housing strategies included something to address eviction, whether that be eviction prevention or blunting the impact of eviction. One of the things that they've realized is is if they can, um, you know, give somebody the back rent that they need or give them a first month's rent on another apartment. It is much cheaper than trying to create a brand new affordable housing unit. This story has a lot of data and a lot of numbers and a lot of policy, but through your reporting, you talk to a lot of people who are facing eviction or who are at least experiencing you know, housing insecurity. And when you're evicted, a lot more changes than just where you sleep at night. Um, I was hoping you could kind of talk about just the impact that eviction can have on a person and their family and how that kind of cycle works. There's a woman who's in the story whose name is Janae, and I did a more detailed interview with her that's on the site now. It's She describes it as traumatic. It was the first time she had been evicted. It was back in 2012, so it was even, it was when prices were just starting to creep upward. And um, she describes coming home and seeing the eviction posted notice on her door and just the shock of seeing that notice. She didn't read the fine print. She didn't look at what her options might be in court. She didn't understand she needed to go to court to answer it. It was a summons. And and she she just figured there was nothing she could do. She describes just moving what she could move out of her apartment when the, the day the eviction was scheduled. And the word she used was hiding. She was with her friend who helped her in his truck, or her truck, actually, I'm not sure, And she describes watching the company that the landlord hired move her stuff out. And then it was a series of couch surfing and the the kind of sense of displacement that comes with that. She said, it just makes you question your value, your value as a human being and what you second guess everything that you do. Because she had an eviction on her record, it made it really difficult to find another landlord who would rent to her. And so it was the series of places that she stayed in, and she's described a feeling of powerlessness there. And she talked about seriously considering, as she put it, laying under some dude, so that she could have a child and it would improve her chances of getting housing. And I just had never heard anyone articulate that kind of desperation. And, you know, she, she she didn't pursue that path, but she she acknowledges thinking seriously about, is this the way, the only way that I'm going to get housing? Am I only going to get housing if I can prove my uterus works? This situation seems so desperate. The numbers, did you say more than 20,000 people applied for 300 housing vouchers? How bad is this? And how are we even, where do we go from here? City officials do use the word crisis. And, you know, they do put that 21,000 figure on the minimum number of affordable units we need. And affordable is is defined as a percentage of the area median income. There's the smaller eviction strategy. That strategy is revolves around getting all of the departments that are, you know, somehow intersect with the lives of people who are being 
evicted or who are in danger of eviction. So that includes code inspectors who, if a tenant calls and says, I've got bed bugs, my landlord won't take care of them, or I've got mold, can you come out and take a look at it? And the inspectors go out and they say, yeah, you can't live here. Then they're going to help steer them toward a specific outreach team at the Department of Human Services um, who will help them find shelter, who you know may help them with other social service needs. And when they post a notice saying that eviction is, is imminent, they are now also including a flyer that gives a phone number for human services. And then there's just a much, much larger strategy that has to do with it, you know, continuing its plan to build affordable housing, working on working on something with developers in which there's a tiny bit of slack in the market right now in the rental market at the upper end. So working with them on maybe can you convert some of these to affordable units in exchange for a you know, tax abatement of some sort? Um, it's a much, much larger strategy of which eviction is one part. You know, this is an issue across the country. Uh, in Santa Cruz, the median house price is $800,000. So, you know, Portland, Seattle, of course, San Francisco, New York. I mean, you can just rattle off the cities. um which have been facing this same issue. And the city's Office of Economic Development, its Office of the Department of Human Services, now the Department of Public Health and Environment, um, you know, they're all trying to kind of get coordinated toward a more collaborative strategy. As Solivan from the city says, there's just no one city agency, no one nonprofit, no one developer. You know, it's going to take this massive coordinated effort. What else? What have I not asked you about? I think for me, one of the reasons that I'm um, drawn to this story is because it is a story about the identity of Denver. It's a story about... um, what Denver was and what it is and what it's becoming. It's a story about whether a city can um, plan and maintain an inclusive um, an inclusive community, or is it going to be the bastion of the wealthy? And the question be beyond that is, does it matter? Why is that important? Why is it important that Denver be an inclusive city? And to me, it's about it's about our values. It's about our values as Denver residents. Um, it's about our values as um, as the city continues to to boom and to grow. About you know who gets to lay claim to the future of Denver, and that's all part of this. That's all, this this story is all part of that question. Are you hopeful that this can be a city for all, or are too many people going to be left behind? I am an optimistic person. I, I, um, but I don't know because I don't know whether or not there's this idea that that this, the government and and market, the developers, the private developers, can kind of work together through land trusts and through building um, mixed income housing that's truly mixed income housing, so that you're deconcentrating poverty in the pockets where it still exists, but. I don't know. I I go back and forth about whether it's too late. And I, I've asked that of almost every city official I've interviewed. Is it already too late? And they all assure me that it's not. Thanks so much for being here, Tina. Thank you. It was great. 
You can read The Denver Boot, more of Tina's coverage and coverage across the state of Colorado at coloradoindependent.com. We are a nonprofit newsroom, so if you're so inclined, please throw us a quick, easy, tax-deductible donation at coloradoindependent.com slash donate. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.